Welcome back to the QAV podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, this is a podcast where I talk with my friend, self-made millionaire investor, Tony Kynaston, about his investing strategy that has allowed him to achieve an average of 19.5% return on his portfolio over the last 20, 25 years. And uh, we normally will take a stock and break it down, look at its financials and apply Tony's checklist to it. But today we have a very special episode. We have a guest on to chat with us, one of Australia's most Respected financial journalists, certainly a very engaging man to talk to, Mr. Alan Kohler. Now, if you don't know who Alan is, and I'm sure a lot of you do, he's been around uh, forever. I think he started his journalism career as a cadet at The Australian in the late 60s, uh, was the editor of the Financial Review from 1985 to 1988. He was the editor of The Age in Melbourne from 92 to 95. In the late 2000s, he set up his own company where he published the Eureka Report and the Business Spectator before selling out to News Corp uh, five or six years later. He was the chairman of Melbourne University Press for a few years. Today, he's running his own uh, investment newsletter again, The Constant Investor as well as still appearing in print and on TV and on radio. And he was kind enough to come on and chat with us about his view of the economy, his view of equities, um, even his view on things like whether or not CEOs are psychopaths and uh, habitual liars. So it's a fascinating chat. And before we get into it, I just want to point out a couple of things. One Tony was sitting in his dining room at his Cape Shank uh, golfing palace. So there's a little bit of echo in his channel, as there has been over the last couple of weeks. But he's back in Sydney now, so that'll go away next time. And um, as always, remember, nothing you hear on this show should be taken as financial advice. We're not financial advisors. We're just talking about ideas and concepts that Tony and, in this case, Alan have used in their own investing. Take some ideas from it if you like, but before you do any investing, go see a proper financial advisor. With that, I'll throw to Tony and we'll get on with the interview. Alan, thank you very much for coming on to our little interview here. It's um, a great honour to have you uh, here. I've I've been a fan for oh, decades now, listening to you on the ABC and then reading the Eureka Report from pretty much its inception, I think. So it's, it's just fantastic to actually be talking to you. Well, it's uh, good to be talking to you, Tony. And thanks for your support over the years. Oh, you're welcome. Look, uh, I'm quite keen to uh, to get your thoughts on how things are going, both in the economy and the market. And I guess we, we can't do that without talking about the election. So I might just throw to you, and it'd be great to get an update on where we are in the market cycle, what your thoughts are on the market and the economy, and uh, what you think things might happen from here now that the election is over. Uh, well, I suppose if we go back a bit, we had in the final quarter of 2018, we had a very big correction. But all markets around the world sort of came down quite a lot, 18 to 20%, uh, bottomed on Christmas Eve, and then rallied really almost back to where they were in October. And so there was a kind of a correction and then a recovery. And the recovery was basically taking it back to where things were. And where things were was that markets were a bit expensive. So I think that on the whole, if you look at the 
if you look at the Australian market as a whole, it's currently, this is minus the banks. So we'll talk about the banks in a moment, but the, the Australian share market minus the banks is trading at a price earnings ratio of about 20 times. And that is above average. And, you know, you wouldn't say that it's t- entirely stretched. You wouldn't say that it's, you know, the, it's a bubble of some sort, but it's certainly above average, the valuation. And it's uh, priced for everything to go pretty well, pretty much right. What was interesting after the election was that the banks had a big, strong rise, about 6 or 7% each on the day after the election, and then kept going after that. And that was mainly because the election resulted in no change to negative gearing. Obviously, there was also no change to the dividend franking rules. Uh, but the main reason that the banks rose was because there'd be no change to negative gearing, which meant that the property market wouldn't come falling in a more of a heap than it has already. And so there was a bit of optimism about the banks. But the banks are still relatively cheap. And that is to say the banks' shares, which represent around about 25% uh, of the market, are still priced for things to go wrong. That is to say they uh, there's a relative pessimism around the banks. So in a, in a way, what we have is two separate sort of markets. The, the mining and resources sector and the industrials are going really well. They're pretty well highly valued, 20 times PE. The banks, on the other hand, have done well after the election, but really they've had a terrible start to this year. And they look below average in terms of their valuation. And they are currently priced for things to not go that well. That is to say, the property market continue to fall and uh, credit growth continue to decline. And also for uh, impaired loans to rise. And also, and the other problem they've got, of course, is that they're having to pay lots of remediation costs, which most analysts reckon haven't stopped yet. So that's where I think things are at in the market, that uh, really it's kind of two set, two different markets, really, in a way. A couple of questions on what you said, Alan. The first one is, Given the sort of stretch nature of valuations in the non-bank sector, my feeling is that the market has basically taken an option on future interest rate cuts, um, notably in Australia, but perhaps also in the US. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, that's correct, honey. I mean, the the thing is that the, the, the reason that the interest rate cuts are coming, uh, the market is now 100% convinced that there'll be a rate cut uh, next month in June. And the forecast from economists, just to be clear about it, the forecast from economists on, on interest rates are that there'll be at least two, possibly three rate cuts. And that's from a, a cash rate of 1.5%. Uh, the reason that's happening is because the economy is getting worse and deteriorating. Now, it is the case that markets tend to focus on what the Reserve Bank or the Central Bank is doing rather than the reason they're doing it, which is the economy. And I think that that's not that appropriate. I think I think it's a bit misguided, really, because the reason that the Reserve Bank's hitting the uh, you know hitting the rate cap button is because the economy is not doing too well, and so that would suggest that the domestic economy, the the the, the basis on which the uh, Australian companies are operating and their sales and so on, isn't that uh, it doesn't look that great. Uh, but it is true that you know the market's kind of focused to some extent on the rate cuts. We do seem to have gone down the rabbit hole a bit on and into an echo chamber of the market waiting for quantitative easing to cut rates and reacting to that rather than to the you know basic P&L and, and earnings potentials for stocks. It, it does seem like to be a very strange time to be an investor. What, what are your thoughts on the whole quantitative easing driving the market sort of scenario? 
Uh, well, the problem is the cash, the cash rate, the RBA cash rate is 1.5%. So therefore, you know, you don't get too many rate cuts from that point before you hit zero. And that's what happened in the US. They cut interest rates to zero in the US, didn't want to go any further than zero. So that therefore, they started printing money and buying bonds. And that was quantitative easing. And so the, the Federal Reserve expanded its balance sheet by trillions of dollars buying bonds with printed money, you, you know. Uh, freshly created money, and that sort of has stopped now. And they're they've been in increasing interest rates now for a couple of years. The problem we have in Australia is that the new interest rate easing cycle is starting with rates at 1.5 percent. So there is a bit of talk that they'll have to do some quantitative easing here because they'll get to the what they call the zero bound. That is to say, the the you know the the zero interest rates. Uh, they'll get to that before they stop needing to stimulate the economy. I mean, it is the case that in some European countries, rates have been cut. And in fact, the European Central Bank cash rate is below zero. So it isn't necessarily the case that you have a zero bound. You can actually cut interest rates to below zero, although it's not very nice. And, and I don't think central banks like doing that. So I, I suspect that it is true that the RBA will probably uh, engage in quantitative easing before it goes below zero. But I think you need to bear in mind, Tony, that uh, the Australian market doesn't really respond much to Australian interest rates. It isn't really about what the central bank here does that turns the Australian market. It's to do, we're more influenced by the Federal Reserve and what happens to global interest rates and global markets because this, you know, the share market is pretty much a global entity these days. And to be honest, I don't think that quantitative easing here or indeed rate cuts here are going to make that much difference. It really has to do with what's going on in the US. And, and the reason the market was has recovered both in Australia and the US in the first quarter of this year is because the Federal Reserve changed its tune. It's not talking rate cuts yet in the way that the RBA is, but it's stopped talking rate increases. And that's really what supported the market uh, here and in the US. Yeah, I think, I think they're both very good points. And it leads me to reflect on whether the RBA and, and the US Fed is a man with a hammer where every problem is a nail. So... At some stage, someone's got to have a look at their mandates and say, there's more to life than just inflation. And there's more tools in your toolbox than just changing interest rates. And we've been through the period of um, lowering interest rates, which drove property prices up very high, reduced income for people who are trying to live off interest in retirement. Uh, just because the economy was perhaps going through a bit of a slump. And it always seemed to me like the RBA needed more levers or the RBA in conjunction with government needed more levers. And I noticed, I think, on the weekend that the RBA chief here actually asked the government to work in concert with them to, to try and uh, put some infrastructure projects into the economy to give it a boost that um, would, I guess, at least help the economy along with interest rates rather than being this sort of one-trick pony act. What are your thoughts on that, Alan? Well, that's correct. The The Reserve Bank really has only one uh, tool, and that is interest rates and monetary policy, and that's that's what it does. And you're right, because it's uh, a carpenter with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But the Reserve Bank governor did start talking the other day about the need for more fiscal policy stimulus. I interviewed the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, this morning and put that to him. He said there's plenty of stimulus coming. They've got rate cuts, uh, sorry, tax cuts uh, proposed uh, for the coming financial year, that will be the equivalent of two interest rate cuts, he says, and uh, he's got more uh, more tax cuts coming down the road. 
So, um, and there's a fair bit of infrastructure spending going on. So, I think it is the case that there is some fiscal stimulus coming, both in the form of tax cuts and infrastructure spending. But the problem is that up until this point, most of the fiscal policy has been quite the opposite of stimulus, if I can put it that way. I mean, the uh, the coalition government has been intent on getting rid of the deficit and going into surplus as fast as possible. And that, by definition, involves fiscal consolidation and a tightening of fiscal policy. And in fact, in the, in the speech that the RBA governor made recently, he talked about the fact that last year, household taxes increased at three times the rate of household incomes, that is to say 10% versus three and a quarter percent. And he said that that was unusual and was a bit of a problem. Frydenberg's response to that was that it's partly due to increasing employment so that the reduction in unemployment leads to more, more taxes paid by household. That is true. But I think it's mainly due to bracket creep. And so what we've seen is, although the, the coalition government did not increase taxes uh, over the last few years, bracket creep has done it for them. And so what they're doing now over the next couple of years, actually three or four years, the proposal is to hand back the bracket creep that they'd been previously taking in the form of tax cuts and governments always do that. So, uh, yeah, look, I think we've seen tightening fiscal policy as, as the coalition has attempted to move the budget back into surplus. And actually, I saw something the other day, just, just on Friday, that showed that the government, the, the budget is now in surplus on a on a 12-month rolling basis. So the the budget is actually in surplus. And so when, when the outcome for the current financial year, the 2018-19 financial year comes out, which is in September, it will show that the, the, the budget for that for that 12 months was has been in surplus. And that, you know, I mean, that's that's the thing. It's by definition, that is fiscal uh, tightening, not stimulus. And, and it kind of uh, has been going against, operating against the monetary policy easing that the Reserve Bank has been trying to achieve. Yeah, it's, that's a good point. So, where would you say the economy is, Alan? Would you say it's reasonably healthy or in, in a problem territory? Is it something which needs resuscitating or do you think apart from a few speed bumps it's going down the road nicely? No, no, it, it's definitely not going down the road nicely. It definitely is weakening. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to be in for a recession. However, the, the economy is not going well at all. And that's why we're talking about rate cuts from 1.5%, possibly two, uh, two or three interest rate cuts. Crikey, we wouldn't be talking about that if we if the economy was going well. It's not going well. And I think the main thing, the main indicator of it, well, there's a couple really. One is wages growth is really low. Inflation is like one and a half percent, well below the Reserve Bank band. But the most important indicator in my view is underemployment. Now, unemployment is 5.2% most recently. And so, it, and it's been hovering around 5% for a while. So unemployment is not that much of a problem. I mean, obviously you'd want it to be four rather than five. But underemployment is the problem, and it's stu- it's stuck above eight percent, and has been for a couple of years. At the same time as unemployment has fallen from six and a half percent to five percent, underemployment has stayed at above eight percent. And so, what's happening is that the economy is changing character to some extent, and in particular, the nature of work is changing. I mean, everyone refers to it as the gig economy in a way, but. Uh, I, I think that we're in a situation now where employment is not binary. It used to be the it used to be the case that you either had a job or you didn't. Or you were unemployed. But nowadays, employment is not quite binary because everyone can get a few hours doing Uber driving or delivering uh, pizzas or making podcasts or 
doing all sorts, you know, uh, making coffee or something like that. I mean, the, there's all sorts of sort of part-time work going and, and people are doing that instead of uh, just going on the dole. But the thing is that they're all underemployed and that is pressing down on uh, wages growth. It's pressing down on incomes. People haven't got enough income because of that. And so if you, if you add together unemployment and underemployment, which I think is what one should do, the figure is 13.5%. And that is a large number. I mean, it's, I wouldn't equate that to unemployment. You wouldn't say, you know, the the addition of those two numbers being 13.5% is what we used to regard as unemployment. I wouldn't say that, but it's something like that. And certainly, I reckon the, you know, the sort of the equivalent number that we used to look at as just unemployment is certainly more than 5%, you know. Take half, you know, take half of the underemployment at 4%, then, then I reckon unemployment probably is more like 9% than 5%. And that's recession territory. So that's the problem I think we have in Australia. And I, I, and I don't think that the authorities in, in the Reserve Bank or Treasury or anywhere are paying sufficient attention to this. Alan, thanks. That's a great summary on, on that whole issue. I can't help but think that eventually someone's going to look at immigration as being uh, part of that whole discussion about underemployment. And I, I also think... If I look back 10 years ago when there was a mining boom going on, there were lots of people travelling north and west to, to work on the mines and the economy was ticking along very nicely and employment was very high. There's some of that now, but it's, it's gone away and the, and the economy hasn't really you know, taken up the slack with jobs in, usually within infrastructure. So I'm, I'm hoping as well that at some stage in the future the government sees the need for some stimulus in that area. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, mines are robotic these days. The robots run mines. The mines are not a source of employment. The Adani mine, uh, that's probably going to go ahead in Queensland, will have no more than a hundred jobs. You know, and it's a, it's the biggest coal mine in Australia. It's all going to be robots. So uh, a mining boom doesn't will no longer lead to employment. It'll lead to money being made by mining companies and therefore paying taxes. And so the money, the, the you know, the government will be rolling in money. That's fine. Uh, but the in order to get employment going, there needs to be infrastructure. And, but more importantly, there needs to be small small businesses, retail, so on, and healthcare. That's, health is where all the jobs are. And, you know, th- that that's fine. I mean, th- and that, that needs to come from government spending and all that stuff. So, look, I do think that there is a problem, you know, a, a sort of a shift in the nature of Australia, the way the, the economy is structured, that means that things are uh, different now. Yeah, and, and what about your thoughts on immigration as well, Alan? I saw in one of your emails that uh, there was a case to say that most of the growth in the economy was coming from immigration. But I wonder if uh, those people coming in are also... Uh, adding to the pressure on people to participate in the gig economy. Well, yeah, of course. But just before the election, some data came out that showed, I think the last, yeah, I'm pretty sure the last quarterly GDP numbers showed that we had what everyone was calling a per capita recession, which is to say on a per capita basis, GDP was shrinking and had shrunk for two quarters in a row. And what that tells you, and, and GDP itself the, the, the overall number was was positive. That tells you that the growth in the economy was entirely due to uh, population growth, which is to say immigration. And that's been the case for quite a while now. I mean, um, per capita economic growth has been hovering around zero, a bit, bit positive, sometimes negative for for almost 10 years. And so, I mean, it's not it's not going too far to say that most of the economic growth that we've recorded over the past decade has resulted from immigration, which is expanding demand, 
expanding production and so on, except on a per capita basis, it has not been growing at all. And if you take away that, plus you take away in recent times in particular, the growth in LNG exports because of the big boom in um, uh, in LNG uh, coal seam gas exports from Queensland, plus more recently the states spending money to catch up on the infrastructure needed because of the immigration, there wouldn't be any growth in the economy at all. I, I can't help but smile. It's a bit of a sorry state of affairs, isn't it, when we're relying on people tipping in the top of the bucket to keep everyone afloat. It's, um, yeah, it's food for thought. But, but given, your, given your comments about the economy and, and where it is, what are, your, what are your comments and feelings about people paying what look like very high prices for growth stocks at the moment, stocks like Afterpay and the various other ones in the wax stable of shares? Well, I think you need to think about what these companies are doing. So uh, most of the technology stocks these days that are highly valued or have high PEs are global. So if you're just looking at the Australian market, these companies are too expensive. But if you look at them as global uh, businesses where they're going after global positions, and global global revenues, then maybe they're not overpriced. Certainly, Afterpay is, is uh, for example, uh, Afterpay is on a high PE because of its US uh, business, which is just taking off. And so the investors are, are betting that they're going to succeed in the US. I mean, they may or may not, but it's it, what, the point being that it's really no, no good looking at sort of traditional PE values. If you're looking at something that's launching a product globally, you know, the, the market is much bigger. And, all, you know, all these companies are global now. You know, th- there's no point. A sort of a traditional PE of, say, 15 times or whatever it is, is 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 useful for the Australian market, but it's not particularly useful looking at a business that's going for something uh, that's global, I think. I understand what you're saying. I think for me, the, the, the key word you used was bet. It, it does seem to resemble more of a casino than a, any sort of investment. I mean, if I was to buy a share like Afterpay, the only way I could value it is to start working out the probabilities of all the various stages of growth actually happening, growth in the US, growth in the UK, what's the probabilities of a competitor coming in, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you, walk, you, know, you sort of have develop a big spreadsheet of all these things happening and then discount them back. But, but that feels like going to Flemington on a Saturday and, and betting on a, a short price horse. Um, anyway. But Tony, another one that's like that is Zero, the XERO, the um, the accounting software company that started in New Zealand, came to Australia, now is global. Um, it's capitalised at eight billion dollars, but it still doesn't make any money. So is that a is that a, a high risk speculative gamble? I don't think it is. I mean, it's got so many subscribers, it's um, it's uh, it's definitely winning. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, Alan. I think the hard thing for me is to work out how much to pay for that um, and how much to pay for it going forward. It's extremely difficult, very difficult. But trouble is that you know you have to you have to shift your thinking to some extent. You can't just use old um, necessarily uh, use old metrics that apply to you know in a mature. Australian-based business. I appreciate that, and I'm happy to put my hand up and say I'm an old thinker. <laughs> uh, the, the first thing I always uh, always look look out for in this kind of market is people who say this time it's different. And um, I heard that in 1999, so it wasn't different then, and I fear it's not different now. And and this market to me does smell a bit of 1999. Do, do you have a, a take on that, or are you you know fairly square in the camp of this time it's different? Oh, look, I don't think it's just one extreme or the other extreme. I mean, I think that there it's a question of the individual business and how it looks. You know, I, I think there's a lot of interesting companies around at the moment. And uh, I think that, you know, the internet is different. I mean, it has developed quite a lot. There's a, 
I don't know. I mean, how can I put it? There's there's tremendous opportunities in the market these days, but uh, obviously there are a lot of shysters out there too. I, but I just I would say I don't think it's like 1999 really. Um, I, I think it's uh, it is. I mean, it is different every time. It's, it's always different, Tony. It's never the same. Things are never the same. It's always different. <laughs> no, well, thank, thank, thanks for the comments. I, I do see that uh, the market tends to rhyme even though it doesn't repeat. But rather than belabour the point, can I ask you, given those comments, does that sort of thinking drive your personal style of investment? What is your personal investment style? Look, I, I, I possibly do take more risks than you do, Tony. I mean, I, I, uh, I try to find companies that, um, that I think are going to succeed in future. I don't always get it right that's for sure so I, I possibly i certainly don't I, I don't really like investing in sort of stayed stodgy blue chips too much you know i'm interested in uh, having a bit of fun with my investing so i mean look i've got i try to i try to have a bit of both i try to have solid good companies you know like transurban things like that uh, as well as uh, try to invest for the future to some extent as well for example i've I've, um, I've invested in a business called Push Pay, which is a New Zealand business that's where the CEOs moved to Seattle, and they've uh, launched a an app to help churches collect donations online instead of sending the plate around, and they're going really well. They're signing up churches. I mean, that, the reason they're in the US is because there are more and larger churches there, and they seem to be going very well. I mean, that's a kind of a, a business for the future, I think. So I'm, I am trying to do a lot of that, but some of the some of the, my, my some of my picks have been vast flops. That's for sure. Does PushPay have an option for uh, five-year-old uh, buskers? Alan, my uh, my young fellow, went busking for the first time on the weekend, and people are walking past, going, "We don't carry cash anymore." I was thinking somebody needs a solution for young buskers. Well, that's the that's the problem with churches. They nobody's got any cash to put in the plate. So, and what the what the churches are finding is that their uh, their donations are increasing by ten to fifteen percent because people are, are donating using their phone app uh, before they go, and they are giving more than they used to. Churches love it. And the Lord said, "Pulleth out thy iPhone and open up our app." Sorry. I'll let you <laughs> Very good. Um, just wanted to drill down a bit further on what you're saying, Alan, if, if we can take push pay. It sounds like uh, you're, I guess, you're looking at the potential upside, you're looking at the story, the quality of the management, etc. Is there any science around your decision to invest or not? Do you have metrics or do you have a particular things you look for? Um, or is it just that you think on a case-by-case basis, basis that's a good story? <laughs> That's about it. I mean, look, I, I, I really focus on cash, how much they've got in the bank, how much cash they're burning, if they are burning cash. These companies, particularly early stage companies, uh, it's very much a cash story. They've got to get there. They've got to not run out of money. And then it comes down to the quality of the management and do I like them? I don't I don't invest in a business. I, I try not to invest in a business unless I've spoken to the management and I've got a sense of what they're like. And it's then it's the question of the idea, really. Whether is the idea good? Is it is it likely to succeed? I mean, I don't always get, as I say, I don't always get it right. I invested in a business called Domacom, uh, which I thought kind of still think the idea was good. I like the management, but it's never it's never gone anywhere, really, unfortunately. So look, I, you know, so, I'm, but I've, I've got a, I've got a, I've, I suppose I've got about a dozen stocks in my portfolio. I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm more a commentator on investing than than a big investor myself. I must, I should add, Tony, I'm a, I'm a student of it, as opposed to 
a rich person. Thanks for sharing that anyway, Alan. It's, it's, always, uh, it's always been a question in the back of my mind because I hear you interview lots and lots of companies uh, in, in, during the week in your Investmart website. And I often wonder, uh, is, that, is that influencing your investment style? And are these people that you are uh, picking on to interview, are they the ones that you have already taken an interest in and want to speak to their management? Or is that just something they've crossed your path some other way? So I, I guess the interviews that, that we hear, are they people that you have taken an interest in or are they uh, people who've contacted you? Uh, well, it's a bit of both, but I try not to interview uh, CEOs of companies that are absolute dogs because I don't think that would be helpful to anyone. So I, I do try to keep it to companies that I think are interesting and worth uh, looking at. Just bearing in mind that I'm not an analyst and I don't, I'm not, I, I, I haven't analysed these businesses. So therefore, the fact that I've interviewed them is not itself a buy recommendation. It's simply an interview, and you know, at the end of the interview. I'll often come to a view that you know it sounds interesting, worth a closer, worth more of a look, and I, you know I'm doing it on that basis too. I'm I'm hoping that you would get to the end of an interview and think, oh well, that's worth more of a look. I wouldn't expect anyone to into invest in a company just on the basis of the interview, but I'd hope that it would introduce that company to you as an investor, and you might be persuaded to do a bit more work on it on the basis of that interview. Thanks for that. I certainly have done that in the past with some of the people you've interviewed, so it is a good a good source of ideas. Cameron and I have spent the last five or six years writing a book on heads of institutions and, and the prevalence of psychopaths in, in psychopaths in those jobs called the psychopath economy. What are your thoughts on relying on what CEOs have to say versus on, you know, fundamental analysis of the companies. Have you ever felt like you've been lied to by a CEO during one of these interviews? Oh, well, all the time. I, mean, well, I wouldn't say lied to, straight out lied. That's, <laughs> uh, they're spruikers. Don't forget, Alan. What? What's the George Costanza line that you quoted uh, today? It's uh, that if it's not a lie if you believe it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, but, but, but the thing to understand, to remember, is that uh, CEOs are spruikers. I mean, they're, they're there to... They're there to sell their company, and things. Whenever I speak to, I mean, it's it's. I always find it amusing. Whenever I talk to CEOs, everything's always fantastic. Everything's great. The future's great. We've got the right strategy, and uh, quite often, quite often, I've interviewed a CEO who says everything's great. We've got the right strategy at the right time. Next week he's sacked, and the new bloke comes in, <laughs> and the new guy comes in. It has to change everything and says, oh, you know, it's just terrible. The place is in a mess. Uh, we have to fix it up. Um, and that's happened more than once, I can assure you. <laughs> we were laughing about that on our show a couple of weeks ago. I've been laughing at, I mean, I, I know you're probably very close to this, but CEOs of newspaper companies over the last 15, 20 years say, no, we've got a strategy now. We've got a great strategy for uh, getting our newspaper back on top and profitable. And then they end up sacking a lot of people, which seems to be the strategy. Well, the thing to bear in mind about all CEOs, including newspaper ones, that they're, they're in the job for two or three years, five years at the most. And their their task is to get through that period without losing too much of their salary. I mean, their job is to keep getting paid that salary uh, for the next few years uh, and then getting out with their skin on. <laughs> and that's really, that's all they want to do. I mean, that's um, fair enough. Well, is that a good thing for shareholders, though, that that's what the CEO's objective is? No, of course not. I mean, and there's 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 a push on, and you know, that's a push I support uh, to uh, make the CEOs 
get paid mostly or at least half in shares that don't vest for seven years. And that's what I that's what I reckon should happen. I think all of this short term incentives and all that stuff, these these STIs and LTIs that they've got at the moment are um, uh, rubbish, really. I mean, I think that they should get just get paid a salary plus some shares that will vest in seven years, and uh, that probably will focus their minds. I agree. Thanks for coming on, Alan. Really appreciate it. I guess I just wanted to give you a soapbox. You spoke about some of the uh, issues there that you support change for. What about some of the other things I've seen and heard you talk about, like uh, conflict of interest in financial planning and, and high fund fees that are getting charged. Do you, do you have something to say about those? I think it is true that the fees that fund managers charge are mostly too high. And it is the case that on average, most fund managers do not outperform their benchmarks or the market, and they tend to underperform by the amount of their fees. So I think fees, and I've come to I've come to see that fees are the main problem in wealth management, apart from conflicts of interest. And I was very disappointed that the Hain Royal Commission did not recommend the separation of advice and product. In fact, he specifically decided not to do that. I think the key problem with financial services in this country is that banks and wealth managers such as AMP are allowed to employ advisors, financial advisors, or to hold their licenses to to be affiliated with them. And so the result of that is that there's a disconnect. People think that they're getting financial advice that is independent, but in fact, most of the time, they're not. It's conflicted. Now, it is the case that the future financial advice legislation banned commissions, but that's not the only way that there is a conflict of interest. You know, someone who's employed by a bank to provide financial advice is naturally going to try to push product, even if the product is not the bank's. I mean, they're they're kind of involved in selling. I think that the, uh, I think financial advice needs to be entirely separated. And I kind of always think of the, what I think is a, is a, is a proper analogy with the health system where, you know, the idea of a doctor giving you prescriptions for a drug company that they're employed by uh, would be completely unacceptable. I mean, if a a doctor, a doctor that gets a kickbacks or, or some kind of a salary from a, from a drug company would be rubbed out and rightly so. But um, in, in, in uh, wealth management, as opposed to health management, it's okay, apparently. And I just think it's not okay. Fantastic. Uh, I agree. Well, look, one, one last question, Alan. And I do this because I read on your Wikipedia page that you're an ambassador of the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation. Would you like to tell us what that is and how we can uh, get involved? Uh, so the uh, the AIEF is uh, founded by Andrew Penfold, and they what what they do is they they support uh, Indigenous people, kids mainly, obviously children, to go to good schools in capital cities mainly. And the thing is that those kids end up with a good educa- education and quite often go back to their communities. And I think it just it really not only helps those kids, but it really uh, has a positive impact on the whole. Uh, indigenous community because they they kind of they go back and they the the, the sort of the the value of education is recognised and spread through the uh, through the whole community. So I just think that you know that's a really terrific uh, charity and uh, they're doing great work. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Alan. That's my last question. I really appreciate you coming on. I've been a big fan for a long time, and I'm always happy to hear your voice crying out against conflicts of interest in the financial services industry in particular. So well done, and and again, thanks. No worries. Thank you. Well, there you go. You uh, got your fanboy uh, interview there done. 
You feeling good? I I did. Yeah, I've been excited about it all week. I, I mean, I really do appreciate Alan's help. He plugged us on his email and he came on board for an interview, and it was a it's a highlight for me. Yeah, someone very special. Yeah. That's great. Um, I thought it was interesting that he said he's more of an investment commentator, an investing commentator than an investor. Did that? You seemed a little bit surprised by that. I was, yeah, because he has spoken before about companies he's invested in, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Doesn't. But I did have the impression, and I stress it was only my impression, that he was a, a fairly large investor, especially after selling some of these companies back to News Corp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a bit surprised, yeah. Mm. And I think also too, just you know, interesting to interview someone like that. I I felt the interview was getting into a bit of a debate between he and I on on various investment styles. So I, I tried to sidestep step that a bit. But uh, yeah, it was um, it was a very different viewpoint from the one that that I employ and am used to. So I think it was good to have that on the show as well to give people a, a wider a wider uh, insight into investment styles. Basically, he said you're an old fuddy duddy. When it comes to uh, internet stocks, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look at it. I mean, name name successful stocks that are still around since the the mm. dot com bash, uh, dot com yeah. boom. Yeah, I mean, there's Google, Facebook, Amazon, Facebook, what, Facebook eBay, wasn't around there. Mm. Google, eBay, Amazon, yeah, Amazon. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really struggling after that. Mm. And yet, in 1999, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of them around. So yeah. I was ex- I was explaining this to I think uh, one of my kids on the weekend. You know, you know, I, as you know, I was working at an ISP in '96. I think I worked for Aussie Mail, Australia's first ISP, and then I went from that to Microsoft, where I I worked in our uh, internet uh, sort of division. So I was the account manager for Wishlist and D-Store and uh, uh, Scape, the big uh, online venture that Village Roadshow threw hundreds of millions of dollars into that lasted about six months. <laughs> Just fact-checking myself there. According to a Computer World article from the 21st of March 2001, Scape hits the dustbin, the 10 Network and Village Roadshow Spent a reported forty-four million dollars to build the website, and um, <clears throat> and a lot of those businesses. And I was explaining to my kids, you know, the the, the percentage of these businesses that survive are minuscule, absolute minuscule. And some of them go on and, and do uh, huge things, but most of them don't last. Most of them don't make it, even though they uh, make huge claims and a. Hailed by venture capitalists and the tech media at the time as being huge visionaries that are going to take over the world. I'm not just talking about Australian businesses. I'm talking about US businesses as well. Very few of them survive to to become a profitable, stable, sustainable business. Well, that's right. I mean, even if you look at Amazon now, I, I think it's barely profitable. Uh, and, and it's certainly been their business model to pump all their profits back into expanding sales. So I don't begrudge them that. But it makes it hard to to value them. Amazon made eleven point two billion in profit last year, so I don't know what you classify as barely. But uh, thanks, Mister Fact Checker. Have a look at what the return is, though. Maybe, maybe by your standards, that's barely <laughs> making a profit. <laughs> uh, but yes, I'm happy to be an internet funny duddy. Well, let's let's talk about that. You and I talked about it a little bit uh, off air earlier today. Um, 
We were talking about value investing. One of the questions I wanted to um, ask Alan but didn't get a chance was why, in his experience after writing about markets for decades, more people, more investors and and fund managers don't follow an inv- a value investing uh, methodology like you do and get the sort of returns that you do. And you were saying something about it sort of comes and goes in terms of popularity? Yeah, it very much does. It comes and goes in terms of the, the cycles. So I remember leading up to the dot-com uh, boom and bash in, in sort of 97, 98, 99, people like, even people like Warren Buffett were coming out saying, I can't find anything to buy in this market. Everything's overvalued, so I'm going to go to cash. And it turned out to be a really good idea because in 2001, he was able to buy a lot of things cheaply. But it can be, you know, periods of four or five years where value investing goes out of style. And I think we're in a phase like that now. It, all the fund managers who've posted good performance in the last 12 months have all had shares like Afterpay in their portfolio. And I can't help think that that's going to come a cropper at some stage. It's just so volatile. And, you know, if they, if they can buy at the bottom and sell at the top, good luck to them. But I, I think that's very hard to do as well because, you know, what's the top for a stock like that? If you can't value it, how do you know when it's overvalued? And mm. the other thought that's also in the back of my mind is that for decades, the business press here has always been littered with stories about companies who tried to expand overseas, particularly to the US, and didn't do so well. I mean, the US is a big market, but it's a difficult market. It's, it's full of 50 states with different legislation in each state and different markets in each state. And lots of entrepreneurs who are ready to copy and implement something on a wider scale than, than the Australian company entering the market can. Now, some have done it and, and hats off to them, but I can't help thinking that if I was writing an app to take donations from US churches, it wouldn't take long for someone involved in those US churches even to have another app in their market with a bigger network than what I could do from New Zealand. So I could be wrong and I am an internet fuddy-duddy, but, you know, it seems to me that these com- the people are overrating the chance of success in the US for these stocks. How did you go from running one of Australia's <laughs> first dot-com retailers to being an internet fuddy-duddy, Tony? I always was an internet fuddy-duddy. I remember working at Colesmire at the time and we had people coming in, including Village Roadshow, and, and pitching their stories to us. And I kept scratching my head going, let's lift the skirts here. Where's the money? Where's the profit? And there wasn't any. It was all about, well, I'm not singling out Village Roadshow here. It's, it was all about, let's let's start an internet company, let's list it, and let's cash in and get out. <laughs> that was never a long-term business model. So, And I think maybe, just I probably didn't, should have asked Alan, but I didn't, I wondered whether his career in newspapers and even in TV is, and the disruption that that would have gone through is now colouring his sort of taste for the disruptors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, look, I don't think there's any doubt that there's a huge amount of opportunity in disrupting business models. But as I said before, the, the number of startups that get it right um, and survive is minuscule. It really is, like you said, going to Flemington. On the weekend, <laughs> and which is something that you are not very good at, based on the results of your horses uh, in the last couple of years. That's right. No, I, I enjoy it, and it keeps my keeps me mentally sharp, but it doesn't uh, pay the bills. Yeah, and I think I think one thing that I just want to add to that, Cam, is with value investing, I, I'd almost call it a science. There's there's metrics, there's 
the ability to look for, you know, th things above or below hurdle rates. You can create a checklist. You can test against something that's real. I haven't yet come across an investor in the dot-com space that has a checklist like that other than sort of soft ones like, oh, we like the management or there's a huge addressable market. It just doesn't seem all that scientific to me. And I, I like the science of investing, not, not the storytelling side of things. Yeah. And I, look, I, I think that's one of the things that I find fascinating about your approach is it is very uh, maths-based and, and rational. It, you, you almost, it's almost like the scientific method. Like you've, you've built in ways of uh, trying to navigate around subjective cognitive bias and the emotion that gets, that we, that everyone gets caught up in when you hear a good story. You know, yeah. We are, humans are storytellers and, you know, we, we are driven by stories and we're susceptible to a good story. You you kind of get beyond that and just look at the, the hard metrics. Yeah, well, thanks. That's that's what I tried to achieve and it's from experience. I mean, like I said, we started off just listening to everybody who'd tell a story to us and take tips and all that kind of thing and it just ends in disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it's boring. You're, it's boring, but... Uh, <laughs> And listen, I, that's not to say I'm, I'm sure. Like I've heard Buffett say, he he missed Facebook, he missed Amazon. They were given opportunities to buy that, and Apple, given opportunities to buy into those companies a long time ago, and said no because they didn't understand how to value it, and they missed out. But uh, you know, you miss some, but long term, he's done okay with uh, doing what he does. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You do miss the winners, and. I guess I've got to learn not to have regret about that. I mean, I could have bought Amazon at 14 bucks in 2001, but I didn't because I couldn't see it making any money. You know, if I had of, we'd be having this conversation in the Bahamas on the G7 Gulfstream, but we're not. So you can't have regrets about that. You've got to stick to what you know, the circle of competence, as Warren Buffett says, and just keep plodding along. It's it's boring. I, I find it fun, but most people would find it boring. It's, it's far more interesting to pick up the phone and talk to CEOs who are always giving you positive news and views about how good their company's going to be and how it's going to be the next Amazon. Far more fun to do that and interesting than to sit down and go through P&Ls and balance sheets looking for, looking for good cash flow and low debt. <laughs> to me, that was one of the most fascinating things about chatting with Alan was just his view on CEOs. Like that sounded something as cynical as something that would come out of my mouth in a book on psychopaths. <laughs> Uh, to come out of his mouth, I find uh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I did too. Um, I guess, you know, he's done enough interviews and he's been around for long enough to be cynical, I suppose. That's the, isn't that the old archetype of the hard-bitten newspaper editor? Seen it all done now. <laughs> so uh, what you're saying is if you had bought Amazon back in 2001, you would be flying me with you to St Andrews uh, in July <laughs> uh, when you're yes. going – going on your distillery and golfing tour for a month. Correct. Um, unfortunately, I have to stay here and uh, keep the fires burning. <laughs> oh, well, next time. But I will be in Sydney with you next week. Uh, we're going to hang out, do some video, do some podcasts together in a room less echoey, hopefully, than the one you're in now. It will be, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Sorry about be that. good to hang out. Yeah, it'll be great. No. Yeah. Yep. 
we will do uh, we'll do some more stock analysis shows uh, next week, and hope you enjoyed our chat with Alan Kohler. Uh, thanks to all of our new subscribers as well. Uh, we appreciate that. A lot of you have come over from Alan Kohler's new letter, newsletter, so I hope in particular that you guys enjoyed it. And um, we'll be back soon. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Cam. I'm out. See ya. And one last note from me. If you uh, want to sign up to become a member of QAV Club, where you can hear our premium episodes, or you want to check out our archives, if this is the first episode you've listened to, you should probably go back to listen to episodes one, two, three, four, where we talk a bit about Tony's background, how he developed his methodology and his checklist, how it works, etc. We analyze Telstra and BHP, so you get a sense for how the checklist works. Go to qavpodcast.com.au. And I also produce a whole bunch of history and politics-related podcasts. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, go to thepodcastnetwork.com. Check those out. We are not financial advisors. Make sure you get financial advice before you do any investing. And that's us for this week. We'll be back next week with more stock analysis. Thanks for listening.